Should we take it from the top? This is the Mad Men pregame show from WNYC. I'm Ellen Horn. In my day job here at WNYC, I'm the executive producer of Radiolab. At Radiolab, we spend a lot of time working on stories about the ideas and impulses that drive us. We love to grapple with the big forces, like like the counterintuitive things that science observes in physical reality, or large shifts and conflict in culture, how these things play out in the small details of one person's personal story. And that's probably a big reason why I'm a madman obsessive. At its best, it brilliantly deconstructs things like family dynamics, corporate influence, and the gigantic cultural shift for everyone, but particularly for women, as we went from the world of the 1950s to 70s America. And it shows us just how little has changed since then. For the last seven years, Mad Men has been this ride we've all gone on together with characters who've evolved along the way. Over the next eight weeks, we'll pay close attention to these final episodes, and I'll talk with experts in history and advertising, people who were there when it was all unfolding. People who can tell us what's real, what's not, and what we should be watching for. I work in an office surrounded by superfans. One even runs the place. Hi, I'm Laura Walker, president and CEO of New York Public Radio. And Laura, I've asked you to come here and join us on our inaugural episode of the Mad Men pregame show because you were the person who introduced me to Mad Men. And I don't know if you remember, but I was on bed rest. Yes, I, I spent, do remember. I spent the last three months of my pregnancy with my daughter, my my firstborn, um, on bed rest, and you sent me the Mad Men's DVDs, and that's how I started watching the show. Um, for me, it, it's interesting. I started watching the show at this moment as I was making a transition from thinking of myself as largely a child of parents and, yes. and yes, the change to becoming yes. a parent of a child. The show seems so wrapped up in family issues. And and I just wanted to ask you, I understand your father. My father was in advertising. <laughs> so when I watched this, I saw kind of a little bit of the life that I had had as a child. So my father worked for advertising firms and then he was in TV sales. Yeah. <laughs> And and you told me that you you had watched the episodes with you with your family also. Yes, I watched right? it with uh, my my son, not my daughter, but my son, son and my husband. And yes, we bonded over you know every single week. Yeah. Um, and uh, I also we we binge watched it again when my son was sick with cancer. It oh, was wow. a, it was kind of like let's relive that, and then we moved on to the episode that was on the air then. So so you have been watching it with some resonance to to your father and your family what are some of the things that that stand out to you well i you know my father uh is no longer alive but so i would call my mother and say mom was it really did they really drink that much <laughs> she what would she, she would laugh and say uh yeah there were like two and three martini lunches i understand wow uh, but uh my father was was very much of a family man he was not like don wow. in that sense and 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 also the the um, historical, you know, the time of the landing on the moon, the the whole deal. It's just like re, it is like reliving your childhood, but looking at it through adult eyes, as you say, looking at your childhood a little bit as if you were an adult and saying, "What would I have done?" Yeah. So glad I'm not a woman in that age. 
Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, certainly something I take away. And what what are you looking forward to in in as it resolves in these last seven episodes? What are you watching for? Well, you know, it's is it going to be the good Don or the ba- bad Don? What do you think? Uh, <laughs> it's they they are the same Don, you know. What is happiness? It's a moment before you need more happiness. I won't settle for 50 percent of anything. I want 100 percent. You're happy with your agency. You're not happy with anything. You don't want most of it. You want all of it. And I won't stop until you get all of it. Of course, the show is really all about Donald Draper. He's a walking, talking, boozing version of the American dream. At the end of season six, Don got honest and personal, a little too personal, in the last place he should have, a pitch meeting in front of a client. I was an orphan. I grew up in Pennsylvania in a whorehouse. That upset the partners. Don was put on leave. And after blown relationships with Ted and Peggy... I'll always take care of you. His marriage with Megan seemed like the next to go. You don't owe me anything. Season 7. It's the beginning of 1969. Don has his shirt buttoned back up, and he's back at work. Every great ad is a story. And here to tell you that story is our creative director and partner, Donald Draper. But one partner... Jim Cutler isn't having it. It was cut and dry. You broke the stipulations of the addendum to your contract. You set that meeting to force me out of the agency. What was I supposed to do? This was about more than a contract. For Jim, it's personal. I'm deeply unimpressed, Don. You're just a bully and a drunk. A football player in a suit. That brings us to the eve of the presentation to Burger Chef. That's one small step for man. July 20th, 1969. Pete is on an airplane, Betty and the kids are up in Westchester, and Bert Cooper is at home, Bravo. where he quietly, peacefully dies. Meaning, Don has one less partner on his side. Cooper's been dead an hour, and you're prying his hand open? Roger, I know what this company should look like. Computer services, media buys pinpointed with surgical accuracy. It's the agency of the future. Don smells the end, and he goes to warn Peggy. If I win this business and then I go, you'll be left with nothing. You win this business, and it will be yours. Curtain up on the Burger Chef presentation. Every great ad tells a story. Here to tell that story is Peggy Olson. She nails it. As for Don, there's one last hope. Roger orchestrates a coup, sets up a deal to sell the agency to McCann. It's a deal that would tie Don and Ted together with Roger at the helm. It goes to a vote. It's a lot of money. Even Jim is in. The episode ends with Don hallucinating Burt Cooper alive and well, dancing into the afterlife. The moon belongs to everyone. The best things in life are free. Leaving us all with nearly a year to think about what it all meant. So here we are, summer of 69, and we've got just seven more episodes to go. How's it going to end? Audra Wolf might know. She's a historian, but that's not really why she watches Mad Men. Well, I love the costumes. I specialize in science and the Cold War, so uh, I'm always interested in, in watching shows that deal with the 60s that try to uh, deal with historical events in any kind of way. 
Let's start with the moon landing. The moon landing played this huge role in the last episode. Sally and Betty, Betty's friend came to visit. She brings her two sons. They all watch it together. So one of one of the things that caught my attention when I watched that scene was um, Betty's friend's son says, oh, what a terrible waste of money. And then we hear Sally parrot that back to Dawn when Dawn calls. Is that a sentiment that anyone would have had in watching the moon landing back then? Absolutely. There were a lot of criticisms of the space race as being a waste of money. Really? Yeah. um, Keep in mind that that President Johnson was building up the Apollo program at the same time that he was pushing his great society programs. So we have things like Head Start and we have uh, the uh, Office of Economic Opportunity that are all happening kind of simultaneously with building up this massive um, space exploration program with uh, you know something like 20,000 contractors and at one point over 400,000 people working uh, to build the space program. Holy cow, that is a, that's a huge workforce. And one way that people talked about that was to call it a moondoggle. Yeah. Uh, it was an idea that, that monies were being invested both in, in military feats and kind of big science and big technology instead of fixing the cities mm-hmm. or uh, trying to create economic opportunities for African Americans. And in, in some ways, the space program was intended to do some of that. It was a giant public works program, particularly Oh, like a big jobs program. I see. Exactly. Right. Exactly. In the West and in the South. Absolutely. But the people who tended to get those jobs tended to be white. They tended to be men. um, They tended to be highly educated people. So it drove economic growth in certain parts of the country, but it didn't drive economic growth equally. The country was in such sad shape. All of this money is being poured into space exploration, which people like to say was peaceful. So the whole point was that it was this, this thing that the United States was doing for no other reason except to inspire people. Uh, While meanwhile, you know, the cities are burning, African-Americans don't have jobs, uh, there's incredible poverty. Um, And that that was a pretty hard case to make. So so just continuing to look back for just a minute before we kind of look forward to what might come in the second half of 1969. Another big character that we see in the first half of season seven is the computer. So like Harry, Harry Crane and Jim Cutler are salivating about this digital future of data analysis, which seems somewhat modern to me, um, but uh, but it made me wonder how how was our relationship changing with with computing in the sixties? I love those scenes with the computer because it really wasn't clear what they were going to do with it. Um, <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, office computers were often doing payroll systems, or they could do uh, one of the most cutting edge things that could be done with the computer in the sixties uh, was airline scheduling, and that came directly from a military technology uh, which was meant to detect. Uh, incoming nuclear incoming nuclear missiles. Uh, but so offices really were using them for things like payroll, or they might be good to develop um, actuarial tables. Um, and, you know, I was scratching my head when I was watching that show trying to figure out what would they do with this computer? Uh, is it to really <laughs> figure out, you know, is it to analyze the kind of the psychological data that they were collecting on people? You know, they, they, they portray the work as being kind of so creative and coming right out of people's heads and coming from discussions and focus groups, those weren't the kinds of things that computers could do in 1969. Most of the men in the office, uh, I guess with the exception of Harry Crane and Jim Cutler, seem threatened by the the computer. Um, what 
What did computers offer for the women in the, in the offices of the 1960s? They were objects that required entire rooms. You would have a whole area devoted to your computer, not something that might sit on a person's desk. Um, these computers uh, were usually operated by teams of women uh, who sometimes were actually called computers. Wait, uh, I'm sorry, was, what did you say the women yeah. are, were usually called? Uh, sometimes they were called computers. The women uh, themselves t- were called computers? The women themselves were called computers. Oh, that's uh, and then, Yeah, well, then later, by the late 60s, they might often be called computer operators. Uh, but those words are kind of the same word that women used to compute. Uh, right. If you see pictures of old computers, these giant rooms and these kind of uh, wall-sized interfaces, it's almost always women sitting there inputting information to these computers. Um, and it was that could be a good job for women. And, and that was the case really until the early 70s. And as the computers became more technical and they were doing different functions in the office, the job changed. What were some of the big shifts in history in the 1960s that we don't see Mad Men tackling? Hmm. That we don't see it. Yeah, like what are some of the things that were happening that may have been bubbling up during the first half of the 60s and that we might get a chance to see a peak of in this final half of of season seven? Right. Well, the show's treatment of race has never been great or that satisfying, but yeah. somehow I doubt that in the remaining uh, seven episodes that they're going to figure out a way to, to make sense of that. And Obviously, uh, Peggy's story and Joan's story have very much been stories about women in the workplace. And Betty's story has been a story of uh, women who aren't in the workplace and what it means to be a housewife during this changing time period. Um, There's a way in which I feel like it hasn't actually grasped that in some ways. Uh, You know, when we think of season one and uh, people are, you know, Peggy's trying to get birth control and it doesn't really work out, um, you know, the, the... that there are different attitudes about sex that are and are not showing up in the show in odd ways. Um, And it's interesting watching Sally, you know, in high school, kind of how that might go. Um, I mean, I think that the show has done a pretty good job with changing ideas about youth culture. And I would think that that this last half of the series, which would presumably be in 1969, 1970, maybe at the latest, that's an incredible kind of youth bomb. Um, and I would assume that the show is going to do a lot with that. I can't so, imagine that it wouldn't, actually. Right, right. So where we left off was, I think, July of 1969. And let's say we get right up to the doorstep of 1970 in these last seven episodes. What's going on during that period? Lots and lots and lots of war protests, uh, both on campus and in Washington. Kind of the, the war protest movement was becoming much more mainstream. Uh, not just something that was happening with kind of radical fringes, but, uh, you know, in, in the fall of 1969, the My Lai massacres became front page news. Um, and some aspects of the draft changed so that more people knew when they were going to be drafted or in what order they might want to be drafted. And those two things together really catalyzed uh, the anti-war movement and, and the protest movement. Uh, so there were massive protests, both on campus and in Washington. Um, that that was a pretty major focus by 1969. Right. If you had to to take a guess at how it's all going to wind up, where where do you think we're headed? Hmm. Aside from obviously questions about Don's fate, uh, <laughs> I mean, as a, as as a historian, as a historian, you know, who specializes uh, in science and the Cold War, and so I've thought a lot about what happened, you know, with the aeronautics industry. 
Um, I think the fate of the California office, um, I'm really interested in what happens to that kind of as a historian. Oh, interesting. Uh, because, because so much of California's uh, uh, post-war growth was really built on uh, the expansion of the military-industrial complex, and especially right. the, um, the aeronautics industry. Um, and, you know, given what they've done with the character arcs for people in California, who knows what Ted's future with the agency is. Uh, Pete seems to want to be in New York. You know, I don't know what they're going to do with that California office. Um, it's really unclear what, what's going to happen with that or what direction that's going to go. Um, I would love to see uh, Peggy's contributions recognized. I would love oh. to see her actually, God, uh, you know, head I of creative too. somewhere. Wouldn't that be fabulous? You think there's a um, chance in hell that that would happen? <laughs> Only if, you know, something horrible happens to Dawn, but, uh, you know, that's not necessarily what I want for the show either. (laughs) Interesting. Well, these are all good threads for us to follow up in future episodes. Thank you so much for joining us, Audra. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And that's it. The Mad Men pregame show is produced by James Ramsey, Dan O'Donnell, Jenny Lawton, Paula Schumann, and Caitlin Thompson. Special thanks this week to Irene Trudell, Latif Nasser, and John Schober. I'm Ellen Horn, watching on Sunday night, martini in hand, and back next week when I've sobered up. Bye.